to see all of you here tonight. We've had an exciting few days. Uh, let's give Joe Bell a hand. Pastor Joe Bell, Calvary Chapel, good to have him with us tonight. We have been totally blessed by Colonel Somerville, and uh, tonight will be the final night for a while until he comes back again. He'll be heading back to California, but uh, it's been a blessing. How many of you have been blessed, and how many of you are, are really desiring to go to Israel? It'd be an awesome, awesome trip. Uh, Mary uh, Somerville, his wife, come on, come on down here, Mary. Give Mary a hand as she comes. She's going to share a moment about her experiences over there with John and especially with the IDF. Thank you. I just, I just want to introduce this lady. She is a mighty woman of God. I got to spend time with her on Saturday for breakfast, and uh, she just shared with me how she and John met in college and how God put them together. And what did you call him? A summer thriller? A summer, summer, th summer thrill. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, John. <laughs> but she told me about an experience she had, and I said, sometime during this time you're here, would you share that? She said, oh, I, I sit in the back. And so so I've been working on her for two, days, for two days, and I just want her to share. It's such a wonderful thing that God does in our lives, and, and he meets those dreams and expectations that we have if we just keep our focus on him. Yeah, I want to share a little bit about the Israel Defense Force. I took four other ladies with me to Israel. We volunteered to work on a base with all the young soldiers. It was two weeks of... I've never had another experience like it, <laughs> just to let them see the Christ in us and that, and that we love those people. And we learned so much. We had no great facilities, but we are tough mountain women. We can live without power. We can live without hot water, you know. And it was just, ask John, have I been talking about it ever since? And I'm going to do it again. And if anybody here wants to volunteer, you look on the Internet, go to Volunteers for Israel, and you'll find their schedule and when you can go. And I'll tell you, you'll be soldier sisters, <laughs> that's for sure. But it's a wonderful, wonderful way to let people see the Christ in you. You can't talk politics, you can't talk religion, but they can see it in you. And I let them know that there are people in America, so many people, that are standing with Israel. And they said, really? I said, really? We we're, we're got your back and you got our back. So try to go if you can. <laughs> Take some women, and there's men that go too. And you just work in different, we weren't, we weren't told what base we were going on. John didn't know where I was going to be until we got on the bus to go to the base. Oh, it was great. It was great. <laughs> I encourage you. <laughs> Give Mary a hand. Let's all stand. We'll talk about the next trip at the end of the service here. But uh, it was my pleasure. Most of you have been in all of the sessions or some of the sessions. But it was my pleasure several years ago to meet Colonel John when he was the regional director for Christians United for Israel and then uh, visit with him in Washington, D.C. He's a 30-year uh, uh, colonel in the Marine Corps, a lot of experience in the Middle East and 
just a wealth of information, of historical fact, of, of the past, the present, the future, and also how important this election is that we're facing. The center of God's world is Jerusalem, and everything flows out of that through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But through the nation of Israel and the people that will come alongside Israel are going to be blessed, and we know that. And we have a wealth of information, an anointed person with us tonight to share. Let's give a warm Welcome to John Summer. Thank you, Bill. You know, while uh, while you're up, <laughs> and, and we have the flag up, um, the uh, the U.S. flag code. Uh, there is a code. There's, you know, laws about the flag and what you can do with it and all that. It was changed a few years ago, and it doesn't seem that uh, this information has gotten out uh, to the general public. And the change that was made was that uh, veterans of uh, any service um, are encouraged to salute during either the national anthem or the Pledge of Allegiance. And, um, and, and they just don't tell people that. And uh, normally when I'm at a meeting and they're going to open with uh, either national anthem or pledge, um, I tell that to them. And what really blesses me especially is to see World War II veterans who get that salute up there. I mean, it's a horrible salute, you know? I mean, it's not Marine Corps, it's not British, you know? It's, but there's always tears running down their face because they are being remembered and honored uh, for their service. So um, I'd like to uh, lead you in the uh, Pledge of Allegiance and... Um, Certainly, uh, that's the protocol, and you should remember it. And if, you're, if you are a veteran and you're at some meeting, try to get them to do that. That's, they changed the law for that, and we ought to be able to do that. So let's pledge allegiance to the flag. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> um, I've been a little uh, conflicted. This is the, the sixth um, session that I've done. Nobody, I, I don't understand this church at all. Nobody ever allows me more than one. And then it's like, here, let, <laughs> it's like Trump did to, uh, Christy the other day, Christy comes up there and endorses Trump, and he says, thank you very much, now go home. <laughs> That's usually what they say to me. And, um, but uh, So I was kind of conflicted this afternoon, uh, trying to figure out what am I going to talk about, and how can I jam everything in, and all that sort of stuff. And I thought, well, I'll just check the inside of my eyelids for a few minutes to see what's in there. <laughs> And all of a sudden, Bill was there to pick me up. <laughs> so anyway, continuing right along, um, it seems to me that if we have much hope of waking up whatever the evangelical vote is, and I would expect that you'd find those folks um, uh, in churches somewhere. And I, I, this morning I talked about what does that evangelical vote really mean, and it means so, so many different things. Quite honestly, I think it means nothing uh, when commentators talk about it. They can't figure out uh, what that really means. 
But I believe we have to wake up the sleeping church. The sleeping church has nodded off and not been involved in politics, and they've been shut down in many ways. And you know, um, I never got to it this morning, but I was uh, in one of the sessions I was talking about Lyndon Johnson and what Lyndon Johnson did to support Israel. Now, Lyndon Johnson jammed through lots of things when he was uh, the majority leader of the Senate. And one time he was running for re-election and there were a couple of 501c3 tax-exempt organizations in Texas who were going after him. Um, I, right now I forget exactly who they were, but they were big money guys and they hated Lyndon Johnson. So they were pouring all kind of money into it. And Lyndon, as the Senate Majority Leader, said, I got to shut that down. And so a 501c3 is a tax-exempt organization. He went up and he got written in there that they can't be involved in politics. He never intended for it to be for churches. I've read affidavits from people on his staff and the ones who wrote it and everything that put it through. He had no intention that it was ever going to impact churches. It was just to impact these people that were against him in Texas. But over the years, the um, ACLU and others would send letters out to churches say, don't you talk about politics. Don't you do that stuff. You're going to lose your tax-exempt status and all the rest of that. There's a guy in California named Jim Garlow and, and um, a very, very close friend of ours named Jim Franklin, who at his church every year he has one Sunday, and I forget what he calls it, political Sunday or something, and he preaches about politics, and he tells the people who he's voting for and who they ought to vote for, and he tapes it, and he has it transcript, and he sends it to the IRS and say, come and get me, <laughs> and they have never come to get him because they don't want that case to go to court and work its way up to uh, the Supreme Court because of the First Amendment, you know, and religion and also speech and all the rest. of the, They've got a whole stable of lawyers waiting to take this on. And, and to my knowledge, nobody's ever lost their 501c3 as a church for speaking about politics in the church. But almost every pastor I run into, ooh, we couldn't say that. And you go, you go to black churches, and you've always got um, politicians coming in there and speaking on Sundays. You go to Jewish synagogues, the Reformed synagogues, they've always got politicians coming in there. But even like my own pastor, oh, he didn't want to touch it. It's like the third rail. He'll be electrocuted if he does anything like that. We've got to get over that and quit believing a lie because, my gosh, if you don't look at your politics through the prism of a Bible and what the biblical issues are, then what is our religion? It's a, you know, it's phony if we go out and don't vote along those lines. I'm not going to talk about that tonight, so... But it's one reason why the church has been put to sleep, because it used to be, and you know about the black robe militia or whatever uh, Glenn Beck calls them, these were pastors who had their robes on during the Revolutionary War, and after they got done preaching that sermon, they took them off, and they had their uniforms on, and they went off to war. And those people, that's where the moral message in this country, it's got to come from the pulpit. If not, where are you going to get it from? 
television or, or the politicians that are running. It's got to come from the men and women of God who believe these things and who are preaching these things, and we've got to get that back into our society. We need to stand up on that issue. So I'm announcing my candidacy. <laughs> <laughs> the sleeping church, we need to wake them up. And, the, uh, and part of it is the blindness and the coma of replacement theology. Replacement theology has worked its way, and it's nothing new. It has been around since the earliest days of the church. And I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. There's a watered-down and diluted Bible, too. Sometimes, quite honestly, I don't get it. I don't get some of these mega churches that are packed out all the time and it's just come on in feel good slap them on the back and go on out and they count those as the evangelical vote well no wonder that evangelical vote doesn't mean anything anymore if people are getting just a very diluted bible nice little watered down story it's not affecting their lives your attitude toward god is this your ad it's your attitude toward god's word if God's word is not the ultimate um, arbiter in your life, what does God's word say about this? Then, that's, uh, then our attitude toward God is, well, yeah, it's nice you're up there, but I really don't have time for all the niceties of what your word says. And we support Israel because God's word tells us to do so. It's as plain as could be. I think I spent about five sessions kind of pointing that out, how important uh, that is. And your attitude toward God, get this, is your attitude toward Israel and the Jews. If you've been raised as I was in a very anti-Semitic uh, family frankly in a neighborhood in a, in a town and a church it was anti-semitic when you get right down to it if if you've been raised that way and it's still in there and you hear something about a jew and it just kind of gives you shivers like that then god's word is has not penetrated that aspect of your life and of your character your attitude toward god is your attitude toward israel and the jews and um well, that's that. What's replacement theology? Replacement theology teaches that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. God says, okay, here's replacement. Church fits in now wherever Israel was. Yeah, I know I made promises to Israel, but now the church takes the place because Israel just didn't live up to what I wanted them to do. Replacement theology says that the Jews are no longer God's chosen people. Show me a verse where he said, sorry, taking that away from you. He chose them, and they have a mission to do, and nevertheless, they still chose them, and they are still the chosen people. And God has no future plans for the nation of Israel. That's what replacement theology says when you really boil it down. Forget Israel, boys. It's all ours now. We're the, we're the, we're the church. Repa replacement theology was introduced to the church shortly after Gentile leadership took over from Jewish leadership. The early church, the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. How many Gentiles were there? As far as I know, none of them. And by the way, when you go to Israel and they take you up to this little room and they say, this is the upper room, and then they 
make Acts 2 all fit into the upper room, I will guarantee you, you could not fit thousands of people into that room. First of all, that building was built hundreds of years later, but everybody just falls all over themselves because they say, this is the upper room. Where was the day of Pentecost? Where did that happen? on the Temple Mount. It was the only place where you could get tens of thousands of people together. And when Peter preached that sermon, I think it was 3,000 got converted on that first sermon. You know, the, the upper room is hardly any bigger than this room. It couldn't happen there. And yet, and that really bugs me when we go to Israel and I see other groups falling for some of this stuff, which is not accurate biblically. If you go there, you want to get as accurate as you can on the biblical sites, and then it really fits and it makes sense. Well, that early church was entirely Jewish for a long period of time. We don't know how many years it was. It was all Jews. And then... God shows something to Peter on the housetop down in Joppa. And it was this vision of a sheet coming down, and in it were all these animals and crawling things and all the rest of that. And he says, hey, Peter, have something to eat. He says, not me, Lord. I always eat kosher. I've never eaten any of that junk there. And he showed it to him three times, and he didn't get it. Couldn't believe it. But what was that about? Somebody's knocking at the door. Peter. You've got to come with us up to Caesarea because Cornelius, a Gentile, an angel came to him and said, send some men and go get Peter. And Peter went the next day. They went up to Caesarea and he went in and he spoke to these Gentiles and he said, you know, a Jew's not allowed to come in the house here. This is just not kosher for something to do. And when he did, and he's speaking about that Jesus was the Son of God and that Jesus died and raised again, and all of a sudden they started speaking in tongues. He goes, whoa, this can't be. First of all, they didn't get baptized. Second of all, they're Gentiles. None of this makes sense to me. And he goes, whoa, later. Now I know what that vision was about. That wasn't not eating kosher. That was the fact that don't you call people. Um, you know what, what Peter got into that whole thing. I don't know why I'm talking about this. I guess I do come to think of it. We're talking about the early church. They were all Jews. And then the Gentiles came in, and Peter understood it, and he had to go defend it before the, the other members of the church who were Jews. And then Paul came along, and then it went out to the Gentiles. But something intervened. A few years later, what happened was the Romans came in, and this uh, war started, and the Romans destroyed the temple. And... The whole Jewish Judaism was revolved around, was revolving around the temple, about um, sacrifice and worship at the temple. The temple is gone, hasn't been rebuilt since. And the Jews said, that's it, the religion's over. They said, no, it's a new era and we've got to figure what this is all about. So what are we going to do about sacrifice? We can't sacrifice those animals anymore because the temple's not there. So they said, you know, it's going to be the sacrifice of praise. It's going to be the sacrifice of prayer. And so they made these adjustments. But the Gentiles looked at this and said, ah, 
The temple's gone. God must be through with the Jews. And so they started, the, the Gentiles started taking the leadership positions um, in the church. And pretty soon, they're pushing and elbowing and getting uh, those Jews out of there. And uh, by 325 uh, A.D., when Constantine... Um, had supposedly had this vision of a cross and it said in this sign you're going to conquer and he had them paint the cross on all their shields and then he marched them all through the river and said you're all baptized now we're all Christians and um, <laughs> kind of sounds like well never mind <laughs> um, they got rid of the Jews the Jews were put out of the church and I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute. Israel, the Jewish people and the land has been replaced in according to um, uh, this um, idea of replacement theology. It's all been replaced by the Christian church in the purposes of God, or more precisely, the church is the historic continuation of Israel to the exclusion of the Jews, to the exclusion of the former. Now, when you start putting this in theological terms and use those big 50-cent words and all the rest of that, you can really kind of get wrapped around the axle. Um, one, one of the names for replacement theology is supersessionism. Supersessionism means the church has superseded the Jews. And so if you're convinced along those lines, well, then uh, why bother? You know, why, why bother thinking about the Jews? And if the name of J the Jews are mentioned, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, they're going to hell because God got rid of them. So we either got to convert them or we got to stay away from them. And um, that's kind of what replacement theology has led to. The Jewish people, according to replacement theology, are now no longer a chosen people. In fact, they're no different from any other group, such as English, Spanish, or Africans. According to replacement theology... Apart from repentance, the new birth, and incorporation into the church, the Jewish people have no future, no hope, and no calling in the plan of God. And if you agree to that, it means that you cut Romans 9, 10, and 11 right out of your Bible. Now, I had a man one time, because and I won't spend, you know, I won't do the whole thing on Romans 9, 10, and 11, but that's explaining who the Jews are and what it's all about. It's Paul, a Jew, a born-again Jew, explaining this because it's a hard question. And he not only explains it, but I remember going to a pastor that I knew very well who really was a replacement theology guy, and I said, what about Romans 9, 10, and 11? That seems to say there's what it does say it says is all israel will be saved what does that mean and um you know and, and other questions like that he goes ah what you don't understand is you don't understand the english language i said oh okay well that's probably true he said you don't understand grammar you don't understand what a parenthesis is you know if you're reading along and you see a parenthesis you can read right over that parenthesis and the sentence makes perfect sense he said, 9, 10, and 11 is a parenthesis. Just read over it because he couldn't explain it. 
but that's pretty much what you got to do. You may as well just tear those pages out of your Bible if you really believe in Romans 9, 10, 11. And there's other things you have to do. You have to be a real contortionist. You have to really take the language that's there and stand on your head and turn it around. For instance, since Pentecost, this is what's taught in replacement theology, Acts 2, the term Israel as found in the Bible, now refers to the church. So wherever you see Israel, forget about the Jews, forget about the nation of Israel, just substitute the word church. And um, I know, you're frowning. I don't blame you for frowning, but that's kind of what you do because all those promises, the covenants, and the blessings that are ascribed to Israel in the Bible were taken away from the Jews, and they were given to the church, which has superseded them. That's why it's called supersessionism. But the Jews are still subject to all the curses found in the Bible. I referred to this this morning when the children of Israel came in out, uh, came across the Jordan River, came into the land, Joshua took them up to these two mountains, which are up in uh, uh, Judea and Samaria today, and half of, the, half of the tribes of Israel were on one mountain, the other half were on the other, and he read to them all the law. And he said, if you do these according to God's law, then all these blessings will come on you and all the people on the Mount of Blessing yet, hip, hip, hooray, you know, and they agreed to that. And then he said, if you don't do it, then you, all these curses are going to be yours. And they all up here went, boo. <laughs> I don't know what they did. But anyway, there were curses and there were blessings. Obey God's word, follow the commandments, you get blessed. Go against them, you get cursed. And the entire nation understood that, and they were lined up on two mountains. Now, supersessionism basically says because we have replaced Israel, we get all the blessings, but we're leaving all those curses on the Jews. We don't want to have anything to do with the, with the curses. In A.D. 321, Constantine decreed all businesses should cease on the honored day of the sun, Ooh, called Sunday. So when he was making this change and, and the church was becoming the Roman, the Holy Roman Church, um, first thing they did, it was the fact that Christians up until then were celebrating Shabbat on Shabbat, which is Saturday. Well, that's just too Jewish for this new replacement theology, so we got to move it from Saturday over to Sunday. And, of course, they said, well, you know, Jesus rose, he, was, he rose on Sunday, and so that's the proper day to do it. And uh, my grandmother used to have such a fit because I'd play baseball every Sunday. And she goes, it's the Sabbath. We don't play on the Sabbath. And I said, I think the Sabbath's on Saturday, Ma, Grandma. She said, don't bother me with that explanation. <laughs> she didn't really talk like that, but that's, that's my grandma voice. <laughs> By substituting Sunday for Saturday as the day of Christian worship, he further advanced the split between Christians and Jews. Overnight, Christianity was given the power of the imperial state, and the emperors began to translate the concepts and claims of Christian theologians against the Jews and Judaism uh, into practice. You see, prior to this, under the Roman Empire, before Constantine came along, the Jews were a recognized religion. 
and so they had protection under Roman law. But the Christians were not. First of all, the Christians tried to persuade the emperors that they were just an extension of Judaism. It was what God was always looking for, and they didn't, and they didn't buy that. And so they, the Christians were persecuted, you know, Nero and the lions and all that sort of stuff, while the Jews had the protection of the state. When Constantine came in, he says, now, we're, we're changing that. And they, the Jews were made illegal, and the Christians were made legal. And so now the tables had turned, and, um, and laws were passed against the Jews at that time. Um, and then they went to Nicaea. Nicaea is in Turkey. And the reason they went there was Constantine was trying to get control and to bring the Pax Romana, the peace, to the Roman Empire. But there were fights going on among Christian churches. And they just weren't, don't ever go down there to the Presbyterian church because of this and that and, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. They had armies. And they were fighting over theological issues. And one of the issues was, who really was Jesus? Was he really divine? Was he all God? Was he half God? Was he half man? Was he all man? And did God do this? And they had all these questions, theological and they took to the streets. They had armies, and they were killing each other all over North Africa and around the Mediterranean. There were terrible battles going on, and Constantine, who thought he could unite the entire Roman Empire under one banner of Christianity, got all the bishops, the heads of these churches, this is in 325, and he said, show up in Turkey or else. And they showed up in a place called Nicaea. And basically he said to them, all of this theological fighting has got to stop. And nobody's leaving here until you agree. Now, they'd been killing each other, literally killing each other. And he says, nobody gets out of here till you agree on one creed. And they were there a long time. And like most uh, diplomatic confrontations, you finally realize we're never going to agree, so let's find some words, and I'll think the word means this, and you'll think that same word means that, and if we agree on that word, no matter what it means to other people, then finally we can go home. And so they started coming, they came up with the first Nicene Creed. Now it's been changed a number of times over the years, but it was the idea of we got to jam all this stuff together, and we got to stop fighting. And one of the things that happened there was they really got rid of the Jews out of the Christian church at that time. A result of that council was an agreement on when to celebrate Easter. You know your Bible. When, when was Jesus crucified? It was the time of Passover, right? Okay, so they said, you know, it's too close. It's too close to that Jewish holiday. We got to change it. This year, Easter and Passover are about a month apart. This is about as wide apart as they ever get on the calendar. But it used to be the Christian church celebrated Easter right after Passover, um, three days after Passover and, and all of that. And there was no problem with it. But this is too Jewish. So they changed it. Can anybody tell me what the formula is for how you find Easter? I think it's up there. It's the first Sunday after the first full moon following the vernal equinox. So that's simple, right? I mean, I, I know anybody asks me, 
when is the 4th of July this year? I go, it's on the 4th of July. And they go, oh, you, the guy's brilliant. When's Christmas? You know, 25th of December. It's always there. When's Easter? Uh, nobody knows unless you go look at a calendar. Because they came up with this formula. It had nothing to do with the Bible. It was, we got to remove it from that Jewish overtones of Passover. We don't want Christians celebrating Passover. They were doing that. The Christian church was celebrating all of the Jewish feast days. God gave the Jews those feast days because they were a foreshadowing of what was to come. All of those were very important for the Jews. If Christians will look at them and begin to understand them, then you'll begin to understand what God's overall plan was. But in 325, they kind of got a can opener and they started op they twisting that can and changing it around. And pretty soon, most Christians have no idea what the feast days are that God told the Jews to celebrate. Um, well, anyway, it was to make it independent of the Hebrew calendar. Now, in those early days, most people could not read. And so when churches were built, there were lots of statues and there were lots of things that people looked at. I know I was one of those kids in church. I, we had beautiful stained glass windows. And I studied those stained glass windows every Sunday. I mean, I looked at trying to figure out who those people were on there. And I looked at all. And meanwhile, the sermon's going on. I'm not hearing any of it. But I'm reading the stained glass windows. Now, they did this, especially in Europe. Most people couldn't read. So what you see up here here on, on this uh, left-hand side, this is a church in Germany, and it's a good example, though, of what was taught all the time. On one side of the door, this was the church triumphant, and it shows this woman, and she has a woman, and she has a crown, and she's standing up straight, and she's beautiful, and she's got the cross. On the other side of the door is the defeated Jew, and she's looking down, and she's holding this down, and her staff is broken. And all that kind of stuff. You're walking in and, Mommy, what's that? Oh, that's the defeated Jew. You know, they're through with them. And this over here. Now, this is a uh, baptismal fount um, in a church over there in Europe. And on one side... It shows the ecclesia. This is the church, and it's alive, and it's got flowers on it, and it's blooming. And on the other side is the synagogue, and it's a dead tree. It looks like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree in Pastor Bill's office, you know. <laughs> Although there's, there's a few needles on it. But it's this dead tree over there. And, and you're sitting in church. What are you studying? You're studying this stuff. And the, it's telling you it's the church triumphant. It's blooming. It's blossoming. And the Jews, they're over there, and it's a dead stump. And there's many, many things, especially in Europe and those great cathedrals that are saying those things and they're still saying them even though it's not written out. Martin Luther, everybody knows about Martin Luther. He was um, a great uh, theologian. Um, he uh, led the Protestant uh, Reformation and um, he said some things that were uh, really... Um, Nobody paid much attention in 1543. 
But 400 years later, they dug them all up. I know, I came from a, a German background, and I went to a Lutheran church, and, and I wrote more papers on Martin Luther than Martin Luther ever wrote. So I kind of knew all about one side of him. But I never know, knew this other side. Martin Luther wrote some of the things that were used by Hitler and by the Nazis because... Quite honestly, if you were a German Lutheran and you were brought up, Martin Luther, what he said <laughs> made more sense than what St. Paul said or St. Peter or anybody else because Luther said it. So he really carried that kind of impact. But what most people today in the Lutheran uh, category don't know are the things he said about the Jews. And this is something he wrote. He wrote, their synagogue should be set on fire. For the honor of Christianity, their homes should be destroyed. Their rabbis forbidden to preach under threat of death. Let's drive them from the country for all time. If this advice doesn't suit, then find a better one that we may be rid of this devilish burden of the Jews. Twenty years before that, in 1523, he wrote an amazing uh, pamphlet about the Jews, saying, if I was a Jew, I wouldn't convert because the Pope and the stuff he does. And he wrote wonderful things about the Jews. But within 20 years, he wrote some of the most vile things about the Jews. And they were used by the Nazis to give a Christian veneer to the kind of stuff that they were pushing. He said... First, let's set fire to their synagogues or their schools, and let's bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn, so that no man will ever again see a stone or a cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom, so that God might see that we are Christians. This was used on the 9th and 10th of November in 1938 when an event occurred called Kristallnacht. And in Germany, um, this thing was all ready to go. And there was an assassination attempt on the German uh, ambassador in Paris by a Jew. But it wasn't spontaneous that all over Germany that night, synagogues would all be set on fire, Jewish businesses, all the glass. It was called uh, Kristallnacht because it was the breaking of glass. M millions of Jewish windows were broken all over Germany. And the police held back the firemen when their houses were lit on fire. And then following that night, I mean, it had worldwide implications, Tens of thousands of Jews were arrested to pay for all the damage that was done. And any Jew that had insurance on his um, uh, business that was burned down could not collect the insurance. As a matter of fact, he had to pay that money to the insurance company. to re oh, It was unbelievable. Well, that was underscored by what had been said religiously literally 400 years before. But if Martin Luther said it, it must be okay. Um, second, he says, I advise that their houses also be raised, Jewish houses, and destroyed, for they pursue in them the same aims as in their synagogues. Instead, they might be lodged under a roof or in a barn like the gypsies. This will bring home to them the fact that they are not masters in our country in Germany, as they boast but that they're living in exile and in captivity as they incessantly wail and lament about us before God. What he was referring to was the cantor's 
singing the, the hymns and the, and the prayers of Judaism. He said, third, I advise that all their prayer books and their Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb, for they have justly forfeited the right to such an office by holding... Um, by holding the poor Jews captive with the sayings of Moses, uh, in which the command, which he commands them to obey their teachers on penalty of death, although Moses clearly adds what they teach you in accord with the law of the Lord. Those villains ignore that and, and other things like that. I could go on with, with the stuff he wrote and there's no use doing it. I think you get, get the idea. It was vile and it was horrible. Now, he can be sort of forgiven because some of his apologists say by that time he was a very sick old man. He was mad at everybody. Nobody could keep him happy. He'd fly off the handle all the time, and, and that just came out. But it came out from a man of God, a man that had done great things, and so they, cons in, instead of weighing by the scriptures what he was saying, they just followed uh, him kind of blindly, and those seeds were planted, and they sprouted into the worst of the of the holocaust that have ever happened what we don't understand and i'm not going to show it all to you because i've got lists and lists of that what we don't understand is what was done to the jews for two thousand years by christian leaders we don't know that. That's not taught in our church. So no one's going to take the time to do that. But the Holocaust killed so over 6 million Jews, we're finding out now. That's an incredible number. No, none of us can fathom that. We've never been in a stadium that holds 6 million people. We have no idea what those numbers are. Most of us, if we've been in a big stadium, it held 100,000. And that's a big crowd. That's a drop in the bucket as to how many Jews were killed just within in the span of most of our lives um, back in the 1940s, only 70 years ago. But those pogroms, those killings of Jews occurred again and again and again during the 2,000 years, and we don't know hardly anything about them. 10,000 Jews killed here in, uh, in Manchester, uh, more, more in uh, Germany, and place after place after place. It's just, after a while, it's boring looking at those things, but I was told many years ago by an Orthodox Jewish friend of mine who's become a great friend, and he said, if you want to understand the Jews, you got to understand that we are carrying 2,000 years of baggage, and you Christians don't know anything about that baggage. And to a Jew, all of those killings, including the Holocaust, were done by Christians. How could that be? We're Christians. The cross means something wonderful to us. What does the cross mean to the Jew? It means something different. And when they would say, we were, you know, we were killed by Christians, how could that be? The fact was, you and I would say they weren't real Christians. But you know, the Jews had no litmus test as to who were real Christians. The Nazis were Christians to them. Why? Because they wore a cross. It's called a swastika. It means a hooked cross in German. That's what um, um, 
swastika isn't even a German word. The German word is Hockenkreuz, hooked cross. And Hitler took that cross, just turned it a little bit, but to a Jew, that was a symbol of Christianity. The Jews that were being killed by the Nazis were being killed by people wearing crosses. That meant Christians to them. The see a lot of people they go to Israel and they fall in love with Israel and all that and they buy a um, a, a star of David and then people sell it to them and they put a cross right in the middle and they say I'm going to wear this because it'll be Jews will see this and they'll know that I'm a Christian who loves Jews that's not what they see that's not what they see. They see a symbol. That's kind of like if you took an electric chair or a noose and put it um, uh, hanging off of a cross. I know this, is, uh, this sounds really weird to you, but we don't understand how other people see certain things that we think they they understand differently. And so with Christians, and I've seen it so many times, I wish they just stopped selling that stuff in Israel. They want to be a blessing to the Jews, and they wear a, an electric chair. They wear a, a symbol of death, and they think um, it's a blessing to them, and it's not. And we don't do it intentionally, but we don't understand this kind of stuff. So then we wonder why Jews are so hesitant when Christians extend their hand to them and say, Brother, I really love you. They go, Yeah, right. Uh, I said this the other night, but I really think I really, it really bears repeating. Jews have never seen from Christians unconditional love, the kind of love that Christ in us should exemplify. It's unconditional love. Our love toward the Jews, for the most part, has always been conditional. Here's a tract. See, this is a way to get saved. Now, you, re- you don't want to read it? Oh, you hard-headed Jew. I'm moving on to somebody else. That, uh, a pastor in uh, a big church in Houston was telling me how much he loved the Jews. And then he said, we go to this park. You know that part of Houston where all the Jews live? We're in that park every Saturday. We see Jews. We are distributing flyers like crazy. That was not unconditional love. It was kind of stupid love. But it was turning off the Jews. They weren't going to that park anymore because they're just getting pamphlets jammed down their throat and then we wonder why aren't they open to the gospel look they got 2,000 years of baggage if you're going to get through that baggage you've got to love them you've got to accept them who they are and they've got to love you and God works on hearts that's how God works toward you that's how you got born again that's how he works with people. Somehow we want it different with the Jews. We want to instantly have them all fall down and accept Jesus. Well, um, Hitler wrote many of the same things in Mein Kampf. Mein Kampf was a book that he wrote while he was in prison. He tried to um, uh, a pooch. He tried to take over the government, and it was a big farce. It just didn't work at all. He got arrested. He put him on trial, and they said, "You're going to prison." But the prison he was in was really uh, almost a um, 
a country club. Yeah, it was kind of like that. And his assistants were able to come in. And while he was there, and you see pictures of him, he's wearing lead, leader hosen or whatever those leather pants are and all that, probably dancing German dances and doing all this. And he wrote the book, Mein Kampf, My Struggle his struggle and in his struggle he said here's what i'm going to do to the jews when i get in power and he wrote it all out 1923 it was published and it was a big seller in germany and it was a big seller about four years later in the united states got translated into english it wasn't like we didn't know what it was it was out there but what did people say about him? Oh, he's just a funny little guy with a funny little mustache, and, and he's just a jerk, and nobody listens to him. My goodness, when the spirit of evil got into him, and he took a country like Germany that was the most advanced in Europe and turned it into a pile of rubble in eight years, he destroyed it, meanwhile trying to destroy God's chosen people. Then we said, well, maybe we ought to pay attention to these guys. But they come all the time. They come along and we just kind of laugh at them and we don't pay attention to what they're saying. The church should have been standing up. In Germany, they should have been standing up. When this book came out and people were buying it, the church should have been letting the German people know how wrong this is. But you know, by that time, it was too late. They already had this underpinning of hatred toward the Jews. And they're going, yeah, he says some crazy stuff, but what he says about the Jews is right. They're trying to take over this country. They're, really, when you look at the numbers of Jews that were in Germany, prior to World War II, it was very few. The numbers were minuscule compared to Poland and compared to Russia and other countries. But yet somehow he tapped into that. Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf, he says, they, the Jews are a pestilence. They're worse than the black death of olden times, and the people are being infected by it, and we've got to get rid of it. In 1935... There was another country who bought into this whole hog, and it was the nation of Persia. Persia bought into it. So much so, they bought in this whole idea of Aryan and the Aryan race. And Hitler said the pure Germans are the Aryan race. And the uh, people in Persia said, yeah, they came from here. So they changed the name of their country from Persia to Iran. It means the land of the Aryans. We shouldn't be surprised that in Iran today they are saying the very same things Hitler was saying in 1933 up until 1945 and denying that uh, denying the Holocaust in Iran doing all those things that same devilish idea is there those spirit those evil spiritual ideas don't go away just because the people die they're still there and the one place where it always had taken root was there in in Persia. Remember the prince of Persia in the book of Daniel? Same thing. Anything to stop God's plan. Um, I'm going to jump through some things here. This is, this is kind of a play on words here. Remember I said earlier you've got to substitute the word church for where it says Israel. Well, on the top, this is Romans 9, uh, 2 to 4, and Paul writes, and he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Now, 
if you substitute the word church for Israel in that same statement, Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I wish I was cut off and uh, for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of the church. <laughs> he didn't say that. Okay, and I've, th I'm not illustrating this very well, but it's where you replace Israel um, with the word church. And um, in Romans 11, it says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part. This is what the scripture really says. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. We, you know what, if God tells us don't be ignorant of this, you can rest assured we've been pretty ignorant of it. And now he's beginning to explain it. He's beginning to open it up. And God's word says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. It's a mystery. Brothers, so that you may not be conceited. It's talking to us, Christians, Gentiles. Don't be conceited. God says, don't be arrogant about this situation with the Jews. Don't be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in heart, in part, until the full number of Gentiles has come in. I don't know what that full number is, but this is what God's word says. Now, if you substitute the word church for Israel, he says, don't be conceited. The church has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. You know, it doesn't make any sense, but you have to really do that. If you buy into replacement theology, you've got to replace every place that says Israel with the church and understand it in that way. Now, what's going on in the world today? Here's how I see what's going on. We are having a clash of uh, civilizations, a, class, a clash of what were great empires. And one of the great empires was the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire was um, spread all over North Africa, all over the area where the Middle East is today, and up into Turkey. And it even went farther than that. They were called the Muslims. They were called the Turks. They had a lot of names like that, but it, overall it was the Ottoman Empire. And twice they got as far as um, a Prague. In, um, in Austria, and they were about to get into Europe and take over Europe, and they were thrown back twice. The Ottoman Empire was really a great empire. It ruled in Israel for 400 years, from 1517 to 1917. It was a great empire. And you know what? Empires don't go away. When you're in the Middle East especially, and you're talking to people who, for instance, have lived all their life in Greece, you get kind of lost when they're talking. They're talking about when they were the great empire, the great Grecian empire at times. And not, you know, 2016 or whatever the year happens to be. They kind of flowed in and out. And we always go back to when we were at the peak of our power. See, we don't do that in the United States because we're kind of at the peak of our power right now. Seldom do we talk about it that way. But if you're talking to uh, somebody in Persia, it's the same thing. It's back when it was the Persian Empire and so forth. Now, the Ottoman Empire, just because they're no longer in existence that way, doesn't mean that their leaders don't see themselves as somebody who's going to bring that Ottoman Empire back. And the president of Turkey today, that's the remnant, that's the heart of where the Ottoman Empire was. The president of Turkey sees himself that way.
He looks out and he sees, I can again rule this. And um, that was, um, uh, this is him. This is Erdogan. He's the president. He was the prime minister. What happened in Turkey, 10 years ago, he became prime minister. And he looks back to that man there um, to, the, to his left. That's Ataturk. And Ataturk um, was the, after World War I, he was the leader. He took over Turkey. He got rid of the old um, uh, folks that were running the whole show. And he said the reason the Ottoman Empire fell apart was because we all looked to the Arab countries. We looked out to the east. Meanwhile, Europe was getting technological and everything else, and that's why we were defeated. We've got to change things. So women, get rid of those burkas. Get that stuff off your head. Men, get rid of those fezes. You know, if you're a Shriner, you still wear one of those fezes. Well, everybody in the Ottoman Empire wore fezes. Get rid of those things. He said, that's old-style stuff. And, and so he said, and children are going to school. And we're not allowing the Muslim religion to run our country. It can be a religion like in the United States. They have religions, but you don't mix with politics. And so Turkey started coming in to the New Age right after World War I under Ataturk. And so for all those years, the army guaranteed democracy in Turkey. And whenever the Muslims got too strong and they started becoming very fundamental again in the government, the army rose up, had a coup, threw them out, and a year or two later they held elections again. And that was kind of the history of Turkey until Erdogan came to power about 10 years ago. And the first thing Erdogan did was he purged the army. He got rid of all the generals that were not really good Muslims. And he, he put them either in jail or retired them. So the army no longer protects um, Turkey uh, in their uh, democracy. And so steadily now over the next 10 years, he has made it much more of a pro-fundamentalist Muslim country because he wants to again envision, take over that whole area of the world. Now he's bumping into other people along the way. There's another empire there. We never call it an empire, but it's made a tw up of 22 different nations. And these are Arab countries. And these are the Arab League. There's 22 countries and my number are a little bit old, but it's probably 360 to 380 million people. The Arabs have never gotten it together. And that goes back to the time of Ishmael. When Ishmael was sent out to the desert and his brothers and all the rest of that, and he said, it's my brother against me, and it's my brother and me against my cousin, and it's me and my brother and my cousin against everybody else. And their hand, he's called a wild ass of the, of the desert. His hand is against his brothers, and all his brothers are against him. And that has been the history of the Arab countries over the years. They'll get all together, and they go... Um, charge against Israel and they've got great unity for about five minutes and then they start fighting each other and that, is, that has always happened well this is kind of an empire and they have always resisted being under the Ottoman Empire that was the last empire there, and they were treated as second class citizens under the Turks but they were also other, other, under other empires over the years so they hate everybody that's different than them um the, the one guy that almost pulled them all together was Nasser. 
And Nasser was the president of Egypt. And um, at times he got them to work together, but then he, he kind of lost it. And when he died of a heart attack, Anwar Sadat, who everybody thought was just his lapdog, who just always followed him around, became the president of Egypt. And it was Sadat who attacked Israel in 1973. And because he won the first day, he claimed victory. And then his third army got totally surrounded uh, by Israel. They had to surrender and do all that stuff, but nobody back home really knew about that. They, you could still, you could still go to um, Egypt, and you can go across the Great Victory Bridge of 1973. I went, uh, my staff, we went and with the um, Egyptian army uh, one time, and they took us on a tour of the canal, and we knew what happened to them. But they showed us the great victory they had. Matter of fact, we pulled up in a bus out at their headquarters, and there was this ragged little band of trombone players and tuba players. And they're standing there in the swirling dust, and they're welcoming us, playing this. It's all you could do, except you didn't want to laugh about it. And then they took us over to the canal, and they had these signs written in English, which were really poorly written, saying the myth of the Jew is over and all that stuff, because they crossed the canal, and they did beat Israel for the first day, but then the whole thing turned against them. But they expected us not to know the end of the story. And so that was kind of the story under Sadat, but he had enough, he gained enough glory for himself that he could then go to Israel and make peace with Israel, which was a very courageous thing on his part to do, and for it he was assassinated by the Muslim Brotherhood. And then Mubarak, who was sitting right next to him when he was assassinated, became um, the leader of Egypt for about 40 years. But he was a friend not only to the United States, Mubarak, he was a linchpin, the only country in the Middle East other than Israel that was friendly to the United States, and they kind of did what we wanted them to do. That's a good thing to have, to have a friend like that. And for 40 years, he did not attack Israel. He did not roll his army up there all the time. So in a way, he was a friend to Israel and to the United States. And Obama pulled the rug out from under him uh, just as quickly as he could. And we got the Muslim Brotherhood after that. And now the army has risen up and driven out the Muslim Brotherhood as best as it could. So Egypt is in the hands of the army uh, right now. But that's as close as you can come to having a leader within uh, the Arab world. There's another empire that's moving back in there, and they've been out of business for 40 years, and it's the Russian Empire. It was called the Soviet Union for a long time till it fell apart, but now that Putin has moved back in because the fact is we are not involved in things we used to be involved in. He saw an opening, and now he's in Syria and he's not going to leave and he's going to push as much as he can we should never have allowed him back in because it was part of our foreign policy to get the Russians out of the Middle East and it did bring stability but we always knew they were there and now when Putin sees weakness he pushes back in so the Russian Empire is pushing back in to that same area that the Ottomans want to be in and you may have noticed about a month ago the Turks shot down a Russian airplane. And prior to that, the Russians and Turks were friends. All of a sudden, that's all over. And um, so there's a push going on, and there's a kind of a 
earthquake um, scales are coming together there. And so I won't go through the whole history of the Russian Empire, but there was Stalin, and Stalin's um, mini-me is uh, Putin. He's doing the same thing Stalin was able to, and he's, and he's getting away with it because he senses weakness. The Persian Empire, I spoke about them a few minutes ago. They were around for thousands of years. They also dominated all of that land. They have the same view, even though they're Muslims now, and they didn't used to be Muslims, but they have the same view of dominating that whole area. And if you think that Islam is a religion of peace, you better start and go to another class because um, <clears throat> you're not ready for this. <laughs> That's a driving force, but it's not the only force that drives it. It's this idea of empire again. And the Arabs hate the Persians. They hate the Iranians. They're not the same racial mixture at all. And most of um, Iran are Shia Muslims. And most of the Arab countries are Sunnis. So you have that clash going on, but you also have the racial class, but you have this desire to dominate the area. We've got these empires all coming together right now, again in the Middle East, but it's in the Middle East, which is God's focus. The focus of his prophecies is right there in Israel. And all this tumult is going on around Israel, but I can guarantee you by the word of God that it will not wipe out Israel. Israel is going to live, and during the next war that comes up, and I have no idea when that's going to be, and I don't think it's soon because they're all fighting each other. They can't get it together right now to go against Israel. But when they do, and you can read about it in Ezekiel, they are going to get wiped out. And Israel is going to be seven years cleaning up the mess. Um, so if I was going to go someplace where I'm going to be safe, I'd go to Jerusalem and enjoy it, <laughs> knowing that God is going to intervene. Well, anyway, the old Persian Empire, that's uh, Cyrus and Ahmadinejad. What a lovely guy he was. <clears throat> I was hoping when he first showed up, I didn't, wouldn't have to learn how to say his name, but he stayed around for a long time. And um, this is the... Ayatollah Khomeini, who followed the Ayatollah Khomeini, almost the same name, but a different guy, but the same belief system. He believes in the 12th Imam. He believes in the Mahdi who's going to come back. It's a messianic kind of a figure. Right now they think he's down a well. He disappeared down a well. Under Ahmadinejad, he paved a big road to that well because the whole idea is they are going to do things to bring the Mahdi back, to bring him back, but it's only going to happen when the world is on fire. That's why they want to get a nuclear weapon. But isn't it amazing? For 20 years, they have been pushing and pushing to build a nuclear weapon, and they don't have one yet. Most kids who can Google it could build one in their basement. And they have poured billions of dollars into that. Maybe they'll get it. I don't know whether they're going to get it or not. But isn't it amazing that they don't have one? I mean, we've had one since 1945. That stuff is out there. They could have bought one by now. But every time they've got close, something happens. Now, Israel's involved in stopping them as much as they can. And if, even if they do get a nuclear weapon, then they've got to get a delivery system to put it on. And I just have this vision that I know that when they, if they do get it and they put it on this missile and they get all the big wigs out there and they write, here it comes Israel on it, and they shoot shoot it off, and everybody goes, yay, and it goes up about 15 feet and comes right back down. <laughs> 
because Israel is not going to be destroyed by a nuclear weapon. So you've got the Persian Empire, the Russian Empire, the Arab Empire, um, and, and the Soviet Empire, all of them coming together, and they all are going to have a reason to go after Israel. And, but right now it looks like how can you unite all of these um, different uh, empires? And I believe only militant Islam can unite all of these empires, like ISIS. ISIS almost came out of nowhere and their brutality and their terrorism and stuff and they got a big swath of people and they didn't even have all the weaponry until all the weapons we gave to the Iraqi army they left it and ran away and suddenly they've got all that and they didn't have any money till they rolled into some of those Iraqi towns and liberated the banks and they had the money they didn't have any oil they took over the Iraqi oil fields and they're selling the oil to Turkey and to other places it's an amazing kind of thing to see ISIS come out like that. That is militant Islam. It could for a very it could be for reasons like that that they could unite all of this hatred all of these empires that want to take over and want to go against Israel. So we could see that come uh, in our future. I have no idea how close that is and I don't want to be uh, somebody that scares people but neither do I want to downplay it. This is what's going on in our world. If we only watch Fox News, which I watch all the time, all I know is there's some election going on. I mean, it's like world news doesn't even make it, hasn't even shown up for months, yet the world continues on, and God's plan continues on. By the way, before Mubarak, who was our linchpin in the Middle East, and before Obama pulled the rug out from under him and ended, we had another friend there, and it was the Shah of Iran. And the Shah of Iran in Iran sold all of the oil and gasoline to Israel during those days. Can you imagine Iran today saying, hey Israel, want to buy some oil? He was, he was a friend to the United States. I had a, a master sergeant who was stationed in Tehran when Nixon came there and he told me this story. At first I didn't believe it, but then when I learned more about Iran, I found out it was true. And he said, I was there at the embassy and President Nixon came to visit the Shah of Iran and he was in a convertible and as he came down the street, it was lined with camels. And as Nixon went by, they slit the throat of every camel and they just dropped on down as Nixon drove by. Now, Nixon didn't require that, but that was to show the great wealth of Iran and the um, reverence they had for our leader. And I'm going, they're slitting the throats of camels. He said it was unbelievable. He had no idea what was going to happen. But it just shows back in 75, 76, 77, how close we were. And as a matter of fact, we were helping them with their nuclear program. They were going to have nuclear energy. The Shah was going to turn Iran into a first-rate modern country. And then Jimmy Carter came into office. And the first thing he said was, the Shah kills camels. <laughs> Can you believe me? I didn't say that. But he started saying things. The Shah has a secret army, a secret police, the Savak, and they torture people. And they do, and, and you know, and he's got a pimple here, and there's, there's ugly things about him. And they, this stuff started coming out of Washington. I thought, what is going on here? This is our ally. 
And pretty soon, Jimmy Carter said, human rights are more important than na nations getting together. And they pulled the rug out from under the Shah. And that gave us this. In 1979, Khomeini came in. Where'd he been all those years? First of all, the Shah did not kill him. The Shah expelled him, and he lived in Iraq. And then... He was tired of living in Iraq because they were about to throw him out because he was causing trouble there, and he went to France, and he was welcomed with open arms in France. And we, France should have been warned, you are bringing in a terrorist, and they set up in Paris, and he lived there, and then he made his exit from Paris, went right into Tehran, and took over um, the Iranian state and turned it into a Sharia country, the first Sharia country in modern times. This all changed because two people, I mean, you know, Mubarak was a friend to Israel, and he was a friend of the United States, and we pulled the rug out from under him. The Shah was a friend of the United States and a friend to Israel. Those are two reasons to protect, because there aren't many friends that Israel has around the world. And we pulled the rug out from under him. And the world was changed when Khomeini went in there. Immediately, Osama bin Laden was inspired by this guy. Yasser Arafat got over to Tehran as quick as he could to kiss his ring, and he started funding terrorism all around the world. The latest guy to go over and... <laughs> I'm not going to talk about John Kerry, but... <laughs> John Kerry and our administration gifted him with $150 billion, $150 billion with a B, that we had frozen since 1979. And we paid him interest on that. Yeah. Whew, man, what's he going to do with that money? Oh, I'm sure he'll build baby hospitals and buy, you know, and all. We know what he's going to do with it because he has not changed his religion. He's not changed his viewpoints. He wants to build a nuclear weapon. He wants to start a nuclear war. And we, well, I don't know. This is what he said in order to achieve the victory of Islam in the world. I didn't know there was a, um, a game going on, but he knew it. The victory of Islam in the world, the Islam must take over the world. Islam sees the world as divided into two camps. It's the camps that are already in the Islamic world, and it's the camps that need to be defeated. It's the camp of war and the camp of peace. And believe me, you are in the camp of war because we live in the target area. He has said there's two great Satans. Two Satans, the great Satan, the United States, and the little Satan, Israel. And to get to the United States, he's got to go through Israel. He said that in 1979, and nobody believed him, but we believe him today. In order to achieve the victory of Islam in the world, we need to provoke repeated crises. Osama bin Laden, what did he do? We know all about that. And we need to restore value to the idea of death and martyrdom. No one really saw the kind of martyrdom um, until Khomeini came back in. People blowing themselves up to kill infidels because they're promised that's the one sure way they're going to get to heaven and to the 72 virgins that are waiting there for them. It's, you know, it is a misprint, though, in a Koran. It's not 72 virgins. It's one 72-year-old virgin. <laughs> and there's going to be a lot...
there is such a thing, I don't know. <laughs> well, that could, a fatwa could go out on me for that one, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we have a security here? Okay. <laughs> Anyway, uh, this, these are the things he said. If he said if his if Iran has to virgin, <laughs> if Iran has to vanish, <laughs> that's not important. <laughs> Am I red? <laughs> the important thing is to engulf the world in crises, and they certainly have. They're doing exactly what he said in 1979 that. He wanted done, and it's happened uh, in spades. And these are proponents of his. These are people who agreed with him. And this is the latest who agrees with him and believes in that brand of Islam. And that's President Rouhani, who is the president now of Iran. And because he smiles, we call him a moderate. Because Ahmadinejad was an ugly little guy, and it was hard for him to smile. When Rouhani smiles, we say, oh, we can deal with him. Let me tell you about him. In 1980, he was named by Khomeini as their Secretary of Defense. That was a, he was a young guy, and he was made the head of all the army. Now, one of the problems they had was Saddam Hussein, who in 1980 attacked them because he thought, well, they're weak, they're all confused over there. This would be the time. This war went on for eight years. When Saddam attacked Rouhani realized we can't get through the minefields that are there. We have no minefielding, uh, mine removal equipment. So he came up with a great idea on how to clear mines. He said, I'll drive donkeys and cows through there, and they'll blow up the mines. Well, as soon as the first donkey blew up, the rest of them said, this is stupid, and they took off. <laughs> and, and you're not going to go in there and try to drive them around because you're full of mines. So that didn't work very well. And then he had a better idea. I'll get children to do it. And so he got, literally, we think, tens of thousands of children. And they put them in school, and they brainwashed them for a week or two at a time, and then they gave them plastic keys. And they said, this is the key to heaven. If you die, Muhammad will greet you there, and he'll know that you died freeing the country from the infidel. And they marched these children through the minefields. And then following them after they cleared the mines by being blown up, then the army and tanks went through. This is the guy who did this over and over again. If you think he's a nice guy, just because he got older and he learned how to smile, he's not. He's a devil. And that's the guy we're dealing with, and we're buying into the kind of things that he stands for. The Ayatollah Khamenei... He said that Iran's stated aim is to destroy the global order, and that means to annihilate Israel and the United States. And we fall over backwards wanting to deal with this guy. And since the deal was signed, and by the way, it's not a treaty, because a treaty would have to go before Congress and the Senate. The Senate would have to advise and consent and vote on it. So Obama was sure not to call it a treaty. It's a deal. The deal did not have to go to Congress. And so it's, you know, maybe it'll work its way up to the Supreme Court, but now we've got the Supreme Court hanging four to four. And anyway, so this deal was made with this guy 
who continues to want to annihilate Israel and the United States, and he makes no bones about it. If you've been following the news, he's developing missiles that he's not allowed to by deal, terms of the deal, he's, and you can guarantee, be guaranteed he's still working on a nuclear weapon. And whether he's doing it in Iran, like we looked at last night, or he shipped it out and you know farmed it out to North Korea, somebody's working on it. He's not going to give up his religious beliefs just because he signed a deal, not even a legitimate treaty. He wants to usher in a Shiite messianic era in which Iran will rule the world in the name of Islam. That's what they're after. And we find it hard to believe. We just can't conceive that that's what's going on. He's the supreme leader. It doesn't matter who Rouhani and the others are. He's got the final say on everything. He wants to get rid of any of They only got into those positions because he allowed them to run for those posts. And, and they just get rid of anybody that doesn't believe the way he does, but then they hold a phony election and they get him in. He still is the one that calls all of the shots. This is 1938. This is a precedent. This is when the prime minister of England at that time went over and met with Herr Hitler. Herr Hitler, who I can do business with. And he said when he came back, this is Chamberlain, the prime minister, and he flew back to England from Germany. This is 1938. He says, my good friends, this is the second time that a prime minister has come back from Germany to Downing Street with peace, with honor. And I believe it is peace for our time. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And he held up this paper. It's on film. You can see him waving it. He says, now I recommend you go home.